Good morning. My name is Janice. It is so good to be with you this morning. I'm one of the staff pastors here at the Vineyard, and uh, I love the way he said that. I guess you can come out for dessert and find out what we're really like after hours, which is pretty much not any different than the rest of the time. But it's a, a wonderful opportunity, um, and we still have a few openings. So sign up. It's this week, and we'll look forward to seeing a lot of you there. Well, the men are on their way back, and so this is my opportunity to share with you this morning to continue in the series that we have started, talking about God, this we believe. So we've laid down some of the basics of the faith, of things that um, are, are just crucial to who we are as believers, but also uh, some things that make us maybe distinctive as a vineyard. And so this morning, I want to look at, at a term that a saying that has kind of floated around the vineyard from the very beginning, and it's this. It's that everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to play. And the idea of that was merely that there is room for everyone to participate in the kingdom. Right, there is a place for you in the kingdom. If you don't know anything about the vineyard, um, join the club. I didn't either. A few years back when they asked us if we'd give leadership to it, we said, what's a vineyard? And we began to look into it and began to look into the, the beliefs that surrounded this movement and felt like God had finally called us home and said, yes, this is where we are. People who believe in the Holy Spirit, that's a message yet to come. I can't wait for that one. Uh, people who, who really understand doing the stuff that Jesus asked us to do. And one of the things about it is they are just the most chill people ever. And, uh, and it's about the way that they look at life, that we're all welcome. We are all equal. There's a real discount of hierarchy in the vineyard because it was just started by a bunch of hippies to start with. And, um, and it's just a good thing. So we're going to look at a little bit at what it means for us to all get to play. I don't think this was ever more apparent than it was the first year that we planted the vineyard. All right, so almost 10 years ago, as you know, we're coming up on that anniversary, we, uh, we planted the vineyard, and what happened is we started in the summer, we met several weeks in our living room with, I don't know, 15 or le more or less people that gathered together to talk about leadership, to talk about what we were getting ready to do, and before we launched on a Sunday morning, we had four uh, evening meetings on a Sunday night that, to just kind of test the waters a little bit, and Pastor Joe said, I'm going to preach on, on Peter fishing, and they, you know, they, they uh, fished all night and caught no fishes, and it's going to be hard, which is oddly enough the scripture I'm going to use this morning. But anyway, he said, you know, he was preparing us for this, this long, hard drudgery that it means to, to plant a church. And so we rented a space for just four weeks that we lovingly called the Kawasaki Building. I think it's now uh, painted bright green and yellow out there on the bypass uh, near Coles. If you know, it's that back uh, strip there. And before we got it, it had just been a, a tanning bed place. And so the carpet was lovely. It was all like faded in the shape of caskets. It, everywhere, all over the room, and smelled like, you know, like coconut oil or something. It was really kind of gross. But anyway, that's where we set up shop, and we had like 132 chairs, which was kind of important because um, we really didn't expect uh, much more than that, and we for sure didn't have childcare. Okay, because we're just like going to have a, you know, we're just going to get together and worship and listen to a message. Well, people showed up with kids, and they said, what are you going to do with my kids? 
I'm like, I don't know, you brought them, and, and they threatened to leave if we didn't take their kid. And we're like, okay, we'll come up with a plan. And so uh, we had a little tiny back room and we put the babies in there, and then the, it was summertime, and so we just said to the rest of them, let's just take, we got a parking lot, that's safe. Let's take them out there, and uh, we have no way to corral them, so somebody better be ingenious and create an invisible border. So we, um, so guess who volunteered? The oldest guy in our group, and, uh, and he was an old hippie from California, right, with a ponytail in his 60s, and a good guy. We knew he loved Jesus a lot, and he said, listen, I'll, I'll take care of him. And we're like, dude, just don't let anybody bleed can you just keep them alive until we're done? And so we lovingly called Steve our first uh, children's director. Because everyone gets to play, right? Steve had absolutely no uh, skill set for that particular task. And I want you to know that we vet our children's um, workers a little better now. But the point is, everybody gets to play. Here's the deal. Everybody wanted to play. Everybody was needed to play. In those early days, we couldn't get as specific about people's talents. We moved people around all over the place because you just wanted to be there. And I'll tell you this, we started with two services on that first Sunday morning, which was, you know, we were like really balking at that. We don't think we should do it. Is that wise? They're going to be too skimpy. Well, it's a good thing we did. Like I said, we had 132 chairs. And on the fourth, I think it was the third or the fourth Sunday night, we had like 133 people. That was a problem. And so on Sunday morning, we had to run them through in shifts because we had 206 on that first Sunday morning. That was how God launched this crazy thing. And people stayed for both services. If you were like part of the original crew that helped do this, you didn't come for one service and go home. You couldn't wait to see what was going to happen. And you all know Pastor Joe never preaches the same message twice, right? You know that? Maybe we figured that out the other week when he had to post both of them because they were so different. But, you know, you just never, you were just so excited about what was happening. That's what it means. Everybody just threw in and you were so excited to be there. Now, don't misunderstand me. Just because everybody gets to play, we never meant, and the vineyard never means, everybody gets to do everything they want. Do you know what I'm saying? For example, I have had piano lessons in third grade, and then for part of my seventh grade year. And I've got a little bit of theory down, and I know just enough about piano to be dangerous. You do not want me back there, right? That's not where I need to be. Not everybody gets to be on stage. Not everybody really needs to be in the children's area. Everybody is going to have different gifts, and it's going to be distributed, but there is a place for everyone. You may not be great at everything, but everybody's great at something. So what is that something that you bring to the table when it comes to church community that you bring that allows you to throw in in your most unique way that fulfills the, the body and the design that God set up? Paul talks about this in the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everything, it is the same God at work. To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Do not let that fall, right? That's the purpose of us having different gifts. It's for the common good. It's so that we all can make this thing work together, 
Okay, it's not so that any one person is exalted in their particular gift, but that it all is for the common good. And then he gives a list of a few of them. I'll run through these fast. To one there is given the Spirit, from, through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between the Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And still to another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. We don't get to choose our gifts. God gives those to us. We need to identify them. We need to figure out what God has given us to do, what is unique to us that he, that he is doing. And if we can't figure that out, ask your neighbor. They will usually tell you if you can't sing. Don't ask your mama because she'll lie to you. But ask someone, someone else who will be truthful with you about, is that a gift in me? All right? And it says, just as one body, though, just as the body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. From the very beginning, there was no gender specifics. There's no nationality specifics. There is no social status at this. Everyone gets to play. God has a place for you in the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you right now, if God is calling you to call Vineyard your home, there's a place for you here. There's a place for you to participate with this body, and he has already designed it and planned it in advance. And as Joe often says, if, there, if God is calling you to be a part of the Vineyard, you have something we need, and we have something you need that's part of participating in the body of Christ. Now, I want to use a story out of the life of Jesus to kind of demonstrate that initial calling of people stepping up to the plate. And this may be a familiar passage to some of you. It's going to be found in Luke 5. But let me set this up a little bit. Just in case you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you weren't raised in church and don't have this, let me give you just a couple of basics. The first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all very similar accounts, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life. And so some of them tell the same story. So you may find one account of Jesus' birth in Matthew and another account in Luke that's a little bit different because they gave different details. You may find one in all four Gospels. You may find one account in only one Gospel. People just decided what they were going to report. Well, this particular account is in Luke. It's got a few other places too, so we have more details. And Luke was a doctor. Luke is a man of detail, and so he tells us things and says things a little differently than other people, but that's good, and I like that about him. Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is Galilee, okay? You know how some of you know flowers, and, um, and, and you, know, you may know the nickname of a flower, like that's a daffodil, but if you're really into horticulture, you know that that's really some daffamonious Hermione thing. You know, I don't know, you know what I mean? It's got some other funky name that it really, this is kind of like Luke giving us a different name for Galilee, okay? The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God, and he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, 
Here's Luke being specific again. Simon is his given name, but he is Peter. God will call him Peter. So sometimes you hear him being Simon Peter, sometimes Simon, sometimes Peter. I'm going to call him Peter, okay? But in the scripture, I'm reading it. And asked him to put out a little from shore, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they uh, came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. Some versions say, I will make you a fisher of men. So they pulled up their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. I heard a preacher talk on this message one time, or on this passage one time, and he said, listen, I've, I've heard a lot of sermons uh, talk about why in the world Jesus would choose Peter as his main man, as his main apostle, as his kind of number two guy that's uh, listed first in so many places and, and all of that, and, and listed the reasons why you could pick Peter. He's such a passionate individual, and we know so much about his personality and, and uh, just funny things written about him in these ancient accounts. And uh, he goes, I don't believe any of that. He goes, that might be true, but I think there's one reason that Jesus picked Peter. Peter had a boat. Everybody needs a friend with a boat. You know what I mean? Especially in Kentucky when it rains like it's raining right now. We all wish we had a boat to get to church, right? There, there is something about the fact that Peter has a boat. Here's what I understand from this. Peter shared what he already had. He didn't have to go out and get something to bring it to Jesus. He, and he didn't give the boat to Jesus. He's just sharing what he already has for the ministry. What do you have? What do you have that you would never dream that God could use for the kingdom? But if he taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, take me out in your boat. You've got something, and you would take him out and do this and use it for ministry. Now, we don't know exactly what he was doing out there. The, the understanding is to put out a little bit from shore because of the crowd means a couple of things. It probably gave him a little bit of a mosh pit space, right, so that he had a little distance and he wasn't being mobbed by the people in front of him. But the other thing that it gave him was probably a little bit, have you ever been out on the lake and noticed how people can hear you? You think you're whispering, but they can hear you over there because your voice is bouncing on the water, in an age of no microphones, it could be that it was magnification, that that's what he's using that for. And so uh, Peter's got the sole job of just keeping the boat steady. You know, don't let it spin around. You know, let's keep that thing going. So I'm, I'm assuming that Peter has an active role here. But then when they get done teaching, Jesus says something else to him. He says, Peter, I want you to put out into deep water and put down your nets again. And I don't know about you, but when I hear Peter respond to him, I just hear reluctance. <laughs> He's like, you know, Jesus, really? Because I already did that. I've done that once, and it didn't go so well. 
And frankly, we just got done cleaning the nets. Did you see my guys up there? By the way, I got in the boat to help you and let them clean the rest of the nets because I got a whole crew over there that's doing that. But how many of you have put off doing something because you were anticipating what the cleanup was going to look like? You know what I mean? You're like, oh, I need to do that, but ugh, I, just, I know what it's going to take. You know, if I'm going to start painting something, I'm going to have to clean all of that paint stuff up and clean the brushes. And I don't, you, know, you don't take on a task without contemplating a success or fail. You've got a lot of stuff that you've got to clean up. Not to mention the fact that he's already been out there. He's already been out there, and it hasn't gone well. Thirdly, Peter's a fisherman. He knows the perfect conditions to fish in. These are not it. If it was the perfect conditions to be fishing in, he'd still be out there. There's a reason why there are no fish. There is a reason why this isn't working. Peter's not stupid. He does not have a small operation. This is a massive operation. Did you just notice everybody involved? Peter and his brother Andrew, right? There's at least two boats, but Peter and his brother Andrew, John and James are his partners. Their father Zebedee is involved in this, and there are hired men. That's a lot of people to support. Peter, we know, has a Mrs. Peter, right? We know that because his mother-in-law will be healed by Jesus. For all we know, there, well, anyway, there might have been other little people running around. We don't know, but we know that Peter had a family. He, I mean, unless his wife is dead, he at least has a mother-in-law. So these are men who have, a, it's a business, right? So Peter's not a novice. He knows exactly what he's doing. And Jesus is asking him to go out and do something that he has already attempted when Peter just needs a nap. You know, sometimes you just need a nap. You've fished all night and caught no fishes. But sometimes God is asking us to do what we've already been doing and failing at one more time. One more time. What is it in your life that you have been doing? What is it that you have been working on that has not been producing the results you've wanted? And you are just tired. You are weary. You are ready to quit this thing. You are ready to change careers. You are ready to change majors. You are ready to change spouses. You are ready to change children. Whatever it is that you're doing that just doesn't feel like it's working, and, and you're just like, I am done. I, you know, I, I've cleaned the nets, and it's time to move on. And God is saying to you this morning, go out into the deep one more time. One more time. Yeah, you've been fishing, but maybe you've been too shallow about it. Maybe Jesus is saying, you need to go back and do the same thing you've been doing, but now I want you to go deep. I want you to go long and hard into whatever that task is that I've given you to do, that you have been doing, thinking you were doing it for your own good. I want you to go one more time and watch what I'm going to do. Watch the miracle I'm going to give you when you listen to me one more time. This is going to be Peter's finale. This is his fishing finale, and he has no idea. Right? Now, he's going to get ready to walk away from this entire enterprise. He'll go back to it after Jesus is crucified, but that is a period of disbelief and, and, and faithlessness that he eventually walks away from a second time. But for this, this is his big finale, and Jesus gives him this huge catch of fish because he's out there. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not one who's likely to do this. 
When things are hard for me, when I feel like I am not getting the results that I want, I find a, I find a different gear because I'm not a quitter. Right? If I'm, if I'm on a particular track, if I'm working at something that's not going well, if I'm in a business that's not going well, I just, I go deeper. I dig in and I go, and then I start making desperate decisions. If I'm a fisherman like Peter and I've been out all night and caught nothing, in that one lake, with that one boat, and with that one crew, guess what I'm changing? I'm finding a different lake, I'm looking for a different boat, and I'm looking for a different crew to help me. Because I'm like Sarah in the Old Testament, Abraham's wife. If the promise isn't working out the way you told me to, I'm looking for other options. How are you going to do this? God, I'll give you the glory, but I'm going to look for a different way to do that. And desperation is not good motivation. You don't make great decisions when you're, when you're desperate. And so Jesus steps back and says, no, stay at it. One more time. One more time. Anybody in here ever play Rook? Uh, I, I learned to play Rook out in Oklahoma when we were out there, and I knew nothing about this game because I grew up believing, I didn't believe, my, my family believed we weren't allowed to play cards, so I was really bad at it. I didn't understand the whole thing. And I remember playing Rook, and I had a really good hand, and I had a partner who knew what he was doing, and I was trying to flush out all the trumps. And I remember I was like, oh, I and I heard him say, and I'll never forget this, he said, one more time. Now, you shouldn't have told me what to do, but one more time. It was like, you know, do that last thing one more time. That's what I hear Jesus saying. But now, so against, against his better judgment, Peter goes out and fishes. But don't get too hung up on this big catch of fish, okay? Because Peter's success or failure is not what catches Jesus' attention. Jesus is not picking Peter because of this success and how successful he's going to be at catching fish. Jesus also does not disqualify him for the fact that he hadn't been catching fish before. The fish is not the issue. As a matter of fact, Peter's failure is precisely what is necessary to demonstrate God's miracle. You ever think of that? He needs the failure for the contrast. If Peter had had a pretty good day of fishing, and then he had a super good day, you know, right when Jesus told him to, you'd be like, meh. You know. But the fact that there was nothing, the fact that he couldn't find anything, and then all of a sudden they've got two boats full of fish, now we have a miracle. Now we have a miracle. Maybe we have a failure in our lives that is going to demonstrate God's miracle in a way that nothing else could have done. Because he's going to work off of that thing that you have been failing at, working off of that thing that you've been losing at and not winning at. That's what's going to prove who Jesus is. Now, this is not a message about prosperity. This is not a message, and I don't even think the message, uh, the intention of telling the story is about if you do things God's way, if you, if you fish where you tell him to fish, if you put it on the right side of the boat instead of the wrong side of the boat, then Jesus will give you the biggest paycheck of your life. No, I don't think it's that at all. Peter wasn't hungry. He's not starving at this point. He's just having a no good, very bad day. Right? He's still got an operation. So this provision of fish is not like to bail him out of financial ruin. It's to demonstrate who God is. That's the purpose of this whole thing, is to bring Peter to this point. And here's the point. When Simon Peter saw this, he falls at Jesus' knees and says, Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. The catch of fish brings Peter to surrender. That's the point. 
That's the point. Because Peter is kind of halfway in, right? He's not really playing ball yet. He's not really participating in church community yet. This is the intriguing part of what Luke tells us about Peter that you don't get in the other Gospels. It looks like Jesus' first interaction with Peter is like, hey, dude, come follow me. And he does. Luke gives us a different story. Luke gives us the story that Peter's actually been following Jesus around a little bit. Peter knows that Jesus has been teaching in the synagogue. Peter knows that Jesus has been um, accomplishing miracles. He healed his mother-in-law. He has had him into his house. But notice this, Peter is still fishing for a living. He's not a disciple yet. He's not a full-blown, sold-out disciple until this moment. But with this particular catch of fish, this particular miracle in contrast to his failure is what brings him to this point of surrender. And I'm telling you, sometimes God's miracles and answers to prayer in your life are not about bailing you out and making you feel more secure. They are in stark contrast to your own efforts so that you will know that he is God that he is who he says he is. He is worth cashing it all in to follow him. He is worth changing the course of your life. He is worth taking every ounce of knowledge you have ever accumulated, every item you have ever accumulated, every accomplishment that you have ever achieved, and using it to build God's legacy instead of yours. That's what this proves to him. The final thing Jesus says to him is this, don't be afraid, but from now on, you will fish for people. I will make you a fisher of men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. And what I love about this is Jesus doesn't change Peter's giftings. He redirects them. He doesn't say, Peter, you used to be a fisherman. Now you're going to be an accountant for me. Now I'm going to use you over here to count money. No. He says, you know what? You're a fisherman. And I like the skills you have as a fisherman, and I'm going to use them over here. What skills do you have that God wants to redirect into kingdom work? What is it that he can take and use in kingdom work in that way? I'm telling you, if God can make a fisher of men out of Peter, what can he do with you? Because there's a place for you in the kingdom. There is a place for you to play. And Peter had to feel unqualified. He had to wonder in his mind, what in the world is a fishing boat going to do for you? Do you need some free boat Uber trips across the Galilee? You know, do you need like a vacation boat ride? Do you need a, a quick getaway every now and then when the people are swarming? Exactly what is my boat and, and those skills going to do for you? But I'm telling you, what Peter had been good at, he's going to continue to be good at. Let's look at a few of his characteristics. First of all, Peter's an opportunist. Peter is an opportunist. When the weather is right, you fish. All fishermen have to be opportunists, right? They know when the weather is right, you don't sit around and go, well, it's not quite on my schedule. Nope, now is the time to fish. There's no putting it off until you feel like it. Peter is an enthusiast. Everything he does, he does with gusto, right? I mean, he proves that everywhere he goes. And, and we all know this about fishermen, right? They tell the most exaggerated stories about stuff. That's who I picture with Peter. The fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger every time he tells it. Peter is loyal. This is the disciple that when he sees his master, when he sees his friend in a jam, he's like pulling out his knife and his sword and chopping off the ear of the high servant's priest. And Jesus saying, whoa, calm down, buddy. 
It's all good. No, he's, who doesn't want a friend like that? A friend that'll pull out a knife and, and support you when you're in a jam, right? That's the kind of person he is. Peter is a risk taker. I mean, I don't even watch Deadliest Catch, but I'm telling you, this is Peter to me. He's, he's the guy out there who's going to take the risk to get the biggest haul, to do what it takes, the thing that nobody else is going to do. He's the one who jumps into the water to go sit, to walk toward Jesus when the rest of the guys are going, dude, it's a ghost. You know, I mean, they're all just sitting there and Peter jumps in. He's a risk taker. He's the first into the water that time. He's the first into the water the next time Jesus comes to him in John 21. And finally, Peter's a business owner. As I said before, he has all of the staff to manage. He has all of these things going on. He has financial partners. Jesus can use every bit of this in ministry. All of that management stuff that he's got going on, Jesus, or Peter's going to use that when he starts leading the church. When he starts, when he read his, his letters to the church in the, the New Testament, he's having to use his management skills there. He's always looking for opportunities to reach someone. He's enthusiastic about the gospel. He is loyal, the best kind of staff member you can have. He's a risk taker. He will go where no man has gone before because reaching people for Jesus is always worth it. And he's the first to get close to Jesus every time because he knows where he needs to be. So I'm telling you, when you come to Jesus, it isn't about him stripping away everything that, you, that is part of your identity. All of the skills that you know are who you are. He's not here to strip all of that away. He's here to redirect all of that toward kingdom ministry because everybody gets to play. So what has God given you the ability to do? that he wants to redirect. Finally, Peter and his fishing partners walk away. They walk away from that big catch of fish. Now, the financial person in me says, well, maybe they should have tallied up all of the fish. Maybe he should arrange for his partners to sell that all off, calculated how much that take was. How many years of ministry will that support while I'm over here doing this? Uh, how am I going to? No, no. He leaves that. They walk away from the biggest financial paycheck they've ever gotten, and they will now live on the support of other people who are giving in to the ministry. There are, there are high-status um, women who support Jesus' ministry. There's lots of scriptures about how people were paying into this to keep it going. When you go into ministry full-time, one of the things you give up is the dignity of thinking you're earning it yourself. And you're living off of what people have believed is the mission. And that's important. And Peter does that. So he goes in, all in, and walks away from everything else. So why? Why are we all called to play? Why is it that everyone gets to play? And I would suggest it's because Jesus planned from the beginning that none of us are Superman. None of us are Wonder Woman. Now, I really would rather have lived with the whole, you know, uh, end game thing and Marvel comics and all of that, but I couldn't find any of those comic characters who were as, uh, you know, all-encompassing, have all the gifts, because in my opinion, they've done it really well. They've learned to work. The Avengers worked as a team, right? One of them has this ability and the other has that ability. They work as a team. And that's the idea, that none of us are able to do everything all on our own. We are built for community. We are destined to use our gifts for the common good, and we are designed to work in teams. Because get this, we are intentionally created with deficits. Every 
one of us knows what that deficit is. And if we don't, I bet a family member could point it out to you. There's something that you're not great at. That's okay. Because that's why God put us together as a group. If he wanted us to be the end all of everything and we could do everything that needed to be done, there would be no need for community at all. And Adam wouldn't have needed Eve even. He could have just made this self-cloning perfect robot that could have just moved through. No, he designed us with deficits or places where someone else fulfills us as a group. It is a community throughout. And, and I've been looking at, it's going to be the next study that I'm writing, so I'm giving you a little bit of a preview. But I, I've just been thinking about community in the, in the deepest way, and it goes all the way back to the beginning. God is community. So the, the, the penchant that we have, the, the, the tension, what's, what's the word that I want? Uh, the craving that we have for community is a God-given craving. Because God is community. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all present at creation. They're having a conversation before creation. Let us create man in our own image, right? So there's community there. So God creates Adam with that idea of community, not only with him, but with each other. Then he creates Adam and Eve to work as a team. So you have that in the garden. You get all the way to Noah, and Noah is not saved alone. He's saved with a family you have a team, go take over and do it again with a team. Moses works with a team. He comes, he brings that team of, of Israelites out. I mean, uh, who wants that to work with? Holy smokes. That, you know, a million plus cranky slaves. No wonder he spent so much time on the mountain. And then you have the, the disciples that work as a team that Jesus created. And Peter and Paul are all about planning the team of church leadership. And how you do that, the community is all throughout scripture. So why did God institute the church? To serve him with other folks. Why do we even have to do that? Because some days it feels like we'd rather do it on our own. And let's face it, you can dial up better worship music than you can hear anywhere locally on Spotify. You can dial up a better communicator on a podcast and you can hear locally anytime you want. You can go pray in your closet. You can, you can give money online to any organization you want. What do you need the church for? Why is this? I'm convinced there's a reason. And here's at least one of them. I think God created the church because we're all liars. I think we are all given to ourselves, left alone in solitude. We become liars because we lie to ourselves. And we need people in our lives to speak truth to us. Here's one of the ways we lie to ourselves. Sometimes when we're alone, we begin to speak rejection into our lives. We begin to say, I'm not really good enough. They wouldn't let me in. If they really knew all of my deep, dark secrets, they would avoid me. Nobody's going to let me get past this. There's no way I can recover for, the, for this thing that I've done. There's no possible way I can contribute to that group of people. They wouldn't want me in here if they knew. That's the lie that we begin to tell ourselves. And then the other way that we lie to ourselves when we're alone too long is we begin to believe our own press. We're like, well, I don't really need those people. I'm pretty good, actually, on my own. I'd rather, you know, take care of myself and not have to clean up other messes because those people are just going to drag me down. They're just going to slow me down. I think they're just, they're not my people. I don't think I really want to be around them. I think I'm better off by myself. I, I always hated group projects. You know, I don't really need anybody. 
folks, we all need people to speak truth to us. And when you do church by yourself, just thinking it's you and God, it has nothing to do with the people around you. You don't have anybody to speak truth into your life. And if you're not listening to God, well, you're going to miss that. And so we have to work together as a team. We are called to work together on this project called church, called community. So I just want to go into just a couple of the ways that I think the enemy wants to convince you that you don't have to do this. Convince you that you should just be a spectator like Peter, that you should just kind of watch what's going on from the outside and never really get involved. One of the first things I think the enemy tells us is that you're not really needed a big church. There's plenty of people here. The donuts are out every week. There's always somebody watching the kids. There's always enough people up here praying. It doesn't look like anything's missing. There's no holes. Do you know that not a one of our teams is full? None of our serving teams is full. You know why? Because there's still room for you. There's still room for you to participate. We're not ever going to be fully complete Every, there is always room for someone else to be a part. In a big church, you can hide under the radar. You can slip in. You can slip out. You can avoid participation. You can avoid talking to somebody. And you know, if you're just kicking the tires and trying to figure out if that's where God's calling you, I get it. But I'm telling you, we're called to participate as a group because everybody gets to play. Some of us are afraid of commitment. To be fair, and it's not just people who are wishy-washy. Some people who are afraid of commitment are very determined people. The reason they don't commit is because they keep their word. And if I commit, I know that I'm going to have to do it, and it's a responsibility, and I'm not sure I want to do that yet, and so we're weighing it very deeply. It's time to think about that. Is it time to commit? You know, the New Testament churches dealt with this. They had people who were watching from the outside but were afraid to join. They were curious. They were spectating. They were hanging around and watching what was going on, but they were afraid to join. There are some of us who who are tempted with this idea of self-sufficiency. I don't really need anybody else, right? I just, you know, if anybody could go it alone, it's Jesus. And if Jesus decided to create community around himself, community that he leaned on in his darkest moments in the Garden of Gethsemane and said, dude, pray for me. I want you to pray for me. Why are you falling asleep? If Jesus needed people around him, we need people around us. Here's another way the enemy comes at you. Well, I just feel left out. You know, people keep having parties and forgetting to invite me. And I I don't feel like I really fit in. And I just, I don't know, nobody ever picks me for Red Rover. And I don't, I don't know. Are you so busy waiting to be picked that you're missing out on valuable playing time? Are you sitting around just waiting for somebody to notice and and pick you? Step up. Peter didn't wait for somebody else to notice him. He stepped up. And maybe you're afraid of vulnerability. Maybe you've been in a a church community before and, and something didn't go well. And somebody offended you. Somebody wounded you deeply. And now you just have this thing about religious communities and you're just not really sure about it. Here's what I love about Peter's yes. Peter did not look at Jesus and say, I'm all in, but can you tell me about the other 11 guys first? Because I don't know if I like them. You know what I mean? I want to make sure that they're really going to have my back. And uh, I don't know if I'm going to get, I don't know if they're my people. So I need to figure that out first. Peter doesn't do any of that. Peter signs up for this community because of Jesus. Not because of how he felt about the people that were sitting next to him. 
in the boat. He wasn't dependent on anybody else on the journey. I'm telling you, the enemy will convince you that you're doing fine. You don't need to participate in community. You're doing enough. You're letting them use your boat every now and then. You know, you're, you're watching the miracles. You're spectating. You're taking a little bit of it in. But you're just not really ready to have people up in your business. This is a safer space back here. It is imperative that we do church as a team. It is imperative that we do this. We were not meant to do it alone. We were not meant to serve Jesus alone. We were meant to serve together. We're meant to fill in the gaps for the people around us. None of us is great at everything, but all of us are great at something. All of us get to play. We were designed for community, and there is a place for you to participate. So if you're new here, this is what's going on. We have people up here that are part of our prayer team, and they're ready to pray for you. So if you'll come to your feet, we're going to get into one last song. And as we go into this song, I want to invite you, if you hear God speaking to you this morning, if you heard anything stirring in your heart, I would like you to come forward and let somebody pray over you. And here's just a couple of directions toward that. Maybe you feel like you know there is something in your life that you're getting ready to give up on. You've been, you're getting ready to quit. And he's saying, one more time. I want you to do it. Go out into the deep. Give it your best. Do it one more time. If that's you and you have that going on in your heart right now, come up here and let somebody pray over you. And trust me, if these people fill up, more folks will show up and we'll have room for everybody to be prayed for, I guarantee you. If you don't want to tell them what's going on, you just say, I just want prayer, they will pray for you. You don't have to give them any details. It also occurred to me that there may be people in here today, and the reason that you haven't fully participated, the reason you haven't fully given yourself to community yet, because you haven't fully given yourself to Jesus. You haven't made that initial surrender. You're not, you have, maybe you've been baptized already. Maybe you made a decision as a kid and somebody dunked you and got you wet, but you have never really made that step of surrender. You're a great spectator. You are great at being part of the crowd and you love it and you hang around and we love you, but you still, you know, you've never made that commitment. You've never made that surrender. I'm telling you, Jesus is inviting you today. He's inviting you to take that step. He's inviting you, like Peter, to say, it's not about me anymore. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to lay it all down because I've recognized that you are God. Maybe you need that miracle in your life to convince you that he is that God. If that's you, I'd love for you to come forward. Any of these people will pray with you. I will pray with you if you need to make that surrender to Jesus this morning. Come up while we worship this in this next song.